what I had to gain in being in relationship with my grief and being in relationship with this process of death is an expansion of who I had to be if I was to be in relationship to those things. You're listening to the Not Yet Podcast, a bi-weekly show exploring the relationship between creativity and spirituality. I'm your host, Paige Polk, an Emmy Award-winning experience director, helping you honor the dreams you have for yourself and your community. You're in the right place if you have the courage to believe in a world you haven't yet seen. I'm so grateful you're here. Now let's start the show. Before we jump into this amazing episode with Rachel Cargill, I want to hop in with a little church announcement. As you know, this winter 2023, we have been putting together the Reimagining series, a 2023 event series in three parts, Durham, North Carolina, New York City, and Los Angeles to reimagine the next chapter of our cultural reality. It's been a blast connecting with venues and creators, artists for panels and workshops and live events. And it's been so amazing to see you all come in my DMs, email me with people we should be working with. And I have loved putting this event series together, but unfortunately, I am deciding to cancel it because the resources, the financial resources that we need to bring the experience to life in the way that it deserves we don't have yet, uh, but not yet. The Community Healing Project will be continuing. I will see you next season, uh, the spring of 2023, for more podcast episodes. And we are heading into our quarterly break at PPI, so you won't hear from us in the next two weeks, but um, see you next month. Now let's hop into this episode with Rachel. Welcome back to the Not Yet Podcast, where me, your host, Paige Polk, blends the experience of creativity and spirituality with some fantastic guests. And I am joined today by one of these fantastic guests named Rachel Cargill. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Paige. Uh, To give a little bit of a black and white version of Rachel... Rachel Cargill is an Akron, Ohio-born writer, entrepreneur, and philanthropic innovator. Her work and new book, A Renaissance of Our Own, centers the reimagining of womanhood, solidarity, and self, and how we are in relationship with ourselves and one another. In 2018, she founded the Loveland Foundation, a nonprofit offering free therapy to Black women and girls. This project now extends to her umbrella company, The Loveland Group which houses her learning communities and bookstore, Elizabeth's Bookshop and Writing Center. (laughs) What does it feel like hearing your bio read back to you? I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, Yeah, I've been thinking about what it means to curate a life um, and even perhaps reverse engineer from a bio, a written bio, like what would I love for my bio to be at some point and how do I move towards that as opposed to just falling into opportunities and then your bio being crafted? Yeah. (laughs) Ah, so when this bio that you're sort of reverse engineering, what are the seeds that you already see in the bio I just read? Um, I think the idea of me is like, not the idea of me, the reality of me as an author, the reality of me um, being in philanthropy the way that I am, um, 
and as an entrepreneur, I feel like these are really strong tenants of how I like to show up in the world. So I'm looking forward to branching out and being innovative and reimagining what all of these can be. Um, but I also hearing my professional bio read, I wonder what my personal bio might sound like, or if there's a way that those are actually the same thing. And who am I publicly? Who am I privately? Who perhaps am I as a person who has a very public private life? Um, yeah. You are actually somebody that you're one of the very few people that I have met that I have had actual conversations with that has a public or aspects of a public private life. And one, I'm very grateful to you for sharing these parts of your private life, because I think you are very genuine and intentional of sharing your processes, the imaginings that you have, the developments that you have, um, and the tools that you develop for yourself for reimagining um, and living, like capital L living, <laughs> uh, and I know I'm not alone with that. So as you develop or reorient around this supreme bio or multiple bios, uh, I hope that you know that this balancing act that mm -hmm. you are actively navigating is very much appreciated by others. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. Um, when I reach out to you to speak on this podcast, I reached out to you about grief and the power, the transformative power of grief. And I hesitated. I hesitated about this particular topic um, because there are so many ways that we can register or perceive grief. There's the death of a loved one, the death of an idea, the death of an identity, mm -hmm. uh, the death of an expectation. Uh, and what I want for this conversation is for us to ground this very abstract idea. Um, I have a couple of ideas of how we can do this <laughs> and I am open to co-create that with you together. Uh, one idea that I have is how in the US, or I guess we could argue Western colonial society, we live in a culture that in many ways denies its own sorrow and its own longing whether that's denying a legacy of slavery and genocide, um, whether that is having a culture that has a bit of fear to even responding to grief when it comes to literal death, um, sort of emotionally distances itself. That's one aspect. <laughs> um, we could talk about death in the very literal sense of death of life, um, death and life. I think that they are together. I don't think you can separate them. Uh, and those are really the 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 spaces that I'm feeling I want to navigate. Uh, is there anything that's really speaking to you from those two options? Yeah, I think that the second option that you gave 
brought to mind something very specific that came to me in my own experience of grief around the cycle of life and death and um, what that had meant to me before I like looked death in the eyes in the midst of going through my own mother's death of like seeing it and having to be in deep relationship to it in a way that was jarring and um, ooh, I might even say inspiring to be so thoughtful about something so integral to our existence. Um, you know, my mother was diagnosed with cancer three years before she actually passed, and she was pretty fine for the most part until what I call the, the eight weeks of her active dying. And in the last week or two, it was excruciating to be there witnessing it. And as my mother was passing, I kept thinking, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening. And if someone asked me, Rachel, what usually happens in an hospital room when a baby is being born? Though I haven't birthed a child and though I haven't been there for a birth, I could give a pretty good idea of what it looks like based on media, based on stories told, based on the way that we share our birth stories with each other. But I had no idea what the room looked like when someone was dying. I truly had no clue what was coming. I didn't know what my mom's experience was going to be like. I didn't know what the nurse's experience was going to be like. I didn't know what I, how I would need to show up. And that really bothered me that it was so foreign and mysterious and um, even shameful, perhaps, that we don't talk about or even, and I don't even just mean in the media, but amongst ourselves, what the experience might've been, how we might've wished we had help, how we could celebrate the ways we were helped in the midst of these dying processes. But what I wanted to get to was that I was like eyes wide open at this experience because it was so new to me. I had never seen anyone pass away. And then the emotions of it being my own mother really complicated things, but as my mom was passing, it was so laborious on her end. There was so much labor in her getting through the pain she was feeling in her body, in us running around figuring out exactly what medicine she might need to be okay from one moment to another. In my head, I kept thinking, I wonder if she's laboring into another lifetime. Like if the labor that seems to be happening now is in tandem with a woman pushing, with a woman contracting somewhere in some other parallel dimension in some other lifetime because it felt that laborious to me it felt like this has to like it felt like there was a squeezing a contracting a a major symphony of people coming in to usher through this like portal that we feel so unsure about and i i really kept thinking about the cycle that like i wonder who's being born in this what's being born from from this moment literally like who is who i want to look at the birth records from the day my mother passed to see who she might have come as come back as just because of how laborious it was um but that was the first time i ever really thought critically or thoughtfully not not so much 
Lion King circle of life. Like, oh, that's so beautiful. Things come and go. But like, what actually is the cycle of this from this death into what birth? Um, yeah. And also my feelings that maybe speak to your other point that it's just not talked about enough. We could all say what happens when someone's born, what might be needed, how we might show up, but we don't talk about that in death. And I really wish we did because I think it would be a really powerful healing part of our collective grieving culture. I hear you about the uncertainty. I hear you really deeply about the uncertainty of experiencing death. Um, and I want to add that the uncertainty is almost compounded when you recognize just how many beings are involved in mm -hmm. that process, because it's not just you who's experiencing the death. It wasn't just your mother experiencing the death. It's everyone who's touching that space, mm -hmm. everyone that interacts with that space. Like I'm thinking of the times that I have been in homes mm -hmm. where people have died or are dying. I, I like the, the, the wording you chose of period of active. Mm -hmm. And there is a bit of resonance from group sorrow. Mm -hmm of that collective understanding that there is something changing right now that we can't touch. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually reminded of a book. It's called Bittersweet. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar? Oh my goodness, who is it by? It's by Susan Cain. No, it's not. called, uh, and it's about how sorrow and longing make us whole. Mm -hmm. I'd love to read that. I would love to you to reach you too um and and she speaks about the experience of collective grief and how it is arguably one of the most unifying experiences that we have as human beings absolutely absolutely i i'm i'm floored by it too truly you know my work online in particular has been so rooted in identity as a black woman, as particularly being black. So much of my work has had to focus on either crafted differences of racism or true differences of um, experience. And as I begin to fold grief into the way that I speak publicly, the things that I write about publicly, it's healing to know that at least this is true for all of us. And there's lots of other things that are true for all of us. And even grief itself, even the business of dying has its uh, racial biases, its gender biases, its socioeconomic you know, um, inequities in how someone could die, what peace, what dignity someone can have in death. But I have never felt so fully seen as a human from, the, from my public writing than I have in my opportunity to be in conversation with my readers on grief. I would love to talk about 
what would I like to talk about? Uh, I would love to talk about what grief can give us. Perspective, reminders, um, mm. before the passing of my mother, I used to always think, I don't understand why people are only saying good things about this person. There was clearly bad <laughs> about them. I used to be so frustrated. Like, y'all, when I pass, say that I, you know, say some of the things that also weren't that great about me. Like, I, I know that there are things. And I think I challenge, I'm challenging that version of me who said that now because being human is so hard. <laughs> it's like hard work. And it's like, at least in death, we can rest them in joy, in the good things, in, in you know, in maybe even our imagination of who we hoped they would have been or could have been. So I'm cutting myself and humanity some slack on our desire to only pull out the good when someone passes away, because it's like, let them rest, let us rest, let us find the good and move forward. Um, so even that is a perspective shift that I get from losing someone in grief. Um, I also think we get a new lens into ourselves. It offers, it offers a new lens into um, who we might be. As someone who's lost my mother, I had a huge identity crisis and understanding who I am outside of being a daughter, being her daughter, being who she thought I was. Um, and now I feel as someone who's lost both parents, my father passed away when I was 11, as someone who's lost both parents now, I feel very, um, a deep sadness of losing the tethering I had to the world. I keep saying, I feel like my mom left me in Target. Like how, like, where am I? Why am I here without you? Like, I feel, it feels very bizarre to be on earth without her when she's the one who brought me here. And um, what we get from, really what we get from death is and grief from loss is new opportunity. And that doesn't always feel good, obviously. Sometimes we don't want a new opportunity to do something differently. We feel really good and really adore what we have, who we have. Um, and I think it offers kind of this like launch pad for new considerations, which in my first wave of the grief which I feel like I'm in perhaps still in the midst of this first big wave of it. Um, you know, like I'm angry. I don't want to consider something else, but there's also this little tinge of excitement of like, oh, there's no one who birthed me to tell me who I am. I get to choose who I am. Um, you know, my mother was a very Christian woman, a very Midwestern Christian woman. And so there are parts of me, my queerness, um, the fact that I'm non-monogamous, the fact that I don't want children, these things that really would grind against her own values that I get to live in a little more fully knowing that my mother isn't gonna be ashamed of it in one way or another. Um, so yeah, I think my answer to that is that grief offers us some perspective that hopefully will move us to, some, to, to new things, to new considerations that we might not have known before in the best case scenario outside of you know, the sadness that comes with it.
I want to touch back on uh, what you began with as far as what grief can give us. And you mentioned how you used to feel confused Mm -hmm. and also sounds a little frustrated by people only bringing up positive notions of people once they have passed. And I wonder how much of speaking well of the dead is just speaking truth. As somebody that like, personally, I don't actually believe that people, I believe people are inherently good. I think that the moments of chaos, even chaos can be good. (laughs) I think the moments of pain rather, um, I think the moments of pain are us figuring out what we are not. Uh, and in the interest of bringing forward more truth, it might actually just be nice to share more nice things, more true things about people who have passed, because that's their real legacy. That's the legacy you want to carry forward. Those moments of kindness, those moments of connection, those moments of courage, of intention, of generosity, those are truth. Uh, and to your overarching answer, you, what you landed on of perspective, I'm really excited for you. I'm really excited for you. Uh, and of course, continue to have fun in that yeah. transition space, you know, that sticky space of what am I taking? What am I leaving? Uh, Cause that's cool too. Um, and also this sounds wonderful. <laughs> um, and I'm excited to um, talk to you about it. So we talked a little bit about what grief can give us. Um, I'm also thinking about what's waiting for us when we ex- embrace the experience of death. Uh, yeah. I'll, yeah, you go first, actually. Oh, no, I want to hear what you were going to yeah. say. Uh, I think about... Uh, I think about how grappled by fear I am personally by the idea of death. Um, and what I actually think I'm afraid of isn't the process of dying, but like not my personal death, but that too, but like not the process of death, but rather death happening and me not being a part of it. Like, like me being removed from it or me not understanding or feeling the connection. I think that's what grips me. That's the chokehold that I have around death. And obviously that's going to continue to grow and transition because I'm hopefully, fingers crossed, I'm going to be here in this amusement park we call Earth for a while. Um, but that is something that I want for myself. I want to feel grounded and connected even in moments of transition, even in moments of departure and recognize that I have a part in it mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. I want you to say the question. Ah, yes, for sure. What's waiting for us when we embrace grief? It's really interesting to hear from you about that particular fear of not being grounded in the process because I think that 
one of the things I'm learning in the com- in the public conversations I'm having about grief and even the private ones where people are sharing with me, you know, there's a difference between the way my, my mother passed away with eight weeks of active dying and me knowing it's coming and me having opportunities to maybe say things or hear things and the difference between someone losing their home in a fire overnight and everything being gone and not being able to process it in in real time or experience it or be involved in the way. Um, what this really is speaking to for me is that what I gained, what I had to gain in being in relationship with my grief and being in relationship with this process of death is an expansion of who I had to be if I was to be in relationship to those things. And sometimes, lots of times in life, we're in the grind of it, of waking up, working, figuring out how we're going to pay our rent, trying to meet all of our personal needs, trying to meet the needs of our people. And death opens you up to what's past that, what's more than that, what's beyond that. And then I started to think, well, if there is something beyond that, then it has to also be here kind of too. It's not just this stop and go from this space to the next space. There has to be some relationship. And so in exploring my grief and being in relationship to it, like deep relationship with it, not just like acknowledging it, but like loving it and asking about it and looking for it and making time for it, being in relationship with the grief meant that I was in relationship with something beyond me, beyond my control, beyond what I see, beyond what I understand. And that is very moving. It was very moving for me. I was with a friend a few weeks ago um, in my home in Jamaica and we were going, we were, really having a wonderful time together in conversation about uh, ancestry and our ancestors and our own spiritual practices. And I was, um, I lit a candle and I, you know, I lit the candle and I said, this one's for my mother. And we were talking about it. And what came to me in that moment was I am so proud of her. Like I am so, my mom did the one thing we're all terrified to do. She died, like, wow. Like we're all terrified to do this thing. And she did it. And my mother had never traveled. She wasn't a travel type person. My mom died with one stamp in her passport. And that was to see me in Jamaica a few months before she passed away actually. And to think that this woman who was scared to leave the US, but figured out a way to release herself into a whole other understanding. <laughs> that is badass. I, it, to me, like, wow, like you, she did it. She did it. She died and she's there wherever there is. And in order for me to be in relationship with her, I have to also expand myself into the there. I have to expand myself into considering how she continues to live in me. I have to, I have to be deeper here and I have to be considerate of there, wherever that there is, wherever it is my mom is and who I, how I want to be in relationship with her. 
And so I really felt like what I got from this and what perhaps is an opportunity for all of us in our grief is this opportunity to have an expansiveness beyond, you know, some parts of grief was losing a relationship or losing a job. It's expanding us. Who am I with someone else? Who am I to myself? Who am I outside of the validation of this job? It really demands of us expansion, um, even in the ways that we often, um, you know, fold into ourselves to get through the grief, we're going to unfold as something new. We, we, we can't fold, unfold as the same thing. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the ways that grief is a automatic invitation to expand and to make considerations um, that often reveal, you know, we often surprise ourselves at what we can do and how we can do it and what, what we can shape shift into. I wonder how much of our fear of death is our fear of pain. Because mm. I'm, I'm thinking about the expansion that's required of us to be in relationship with something we can't see or feel or taste or touch that mm. is sort of beyond that sense. There is a huge opportunity when it comes to reimagining what you are, who you are, how you connect how you live when you don't necessarily have an access point that can feel overwhelming. It can feel like your body is breaking down. It's like the computer is short circuiting. It does not compute. And that is what pain is to me. Mm. It's like, it's like a true disconnection. I've never, ever thought about pain in that way. And I'm interested, um, I guess this is such a personal therapy question, <laughs> but I, I, I really am interested in both why that was never a definition for me and why that would be a definition for you. Like what, what deeply painful thing came out of disconnection itself that made you say, wow, this is the definition of pain. And I'll speak for myself and my own psyche, of how disconnection often in my life, and I'm thinking about whatever my attachment style is, often feels like relief to me. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's not my experience at all. <laughs> yeah, for, I've, I've, I am a gatherer. It is, it is a practice that I've built because one, I'm very good at it and I've gotten very good at it because it is something I've built out of necessity. Mm -hmm. um, I, for lots of reasons <laughs> um, that are partially my fault and also not, who gets to decide what's what, I have lived a lot of isolated chapters mm. in my life mm. and I have lived in a lot of different physical logistic locations that have required out of me to develop community because you cannot live on this earth alone, no matter how hard I have tried. I have tried, Rachel. Uh, and from a, even thinking about infants, right? Like, you, like an infant cannot survive, especially an infant human being, one of the most vulnerable beings on this planet, like cannot survive on its own. 
And connection is a life source. Mm -hmm. It's a source of joy. It's a source of nourishment. Uh, It's a source of legacy, a connection to history's past of, of what is the word for a practice that's carried and passed down through generations? Um, like a tradition? Tradition or... works. Okay. It's not what's coming to my head, yeah, but that, that does work. Um, and when, I think I've learned a lot of fantastic things by navigating my own path whether that's moving to Barcelona and figuring it out or or working at a community as a community organizer in Lima for a year and learning about an entirely new culture and how communities connect there and trying to figure out how I fit in a completely different relational space than I grew up with um I think that that is a gift that I have. I think it is a gift that I want to give to other people. And also it comes from a place of pain that I am nourishing, nourishing, that mm-hmm. I am nurturing. Mm-hmm. Um, because for me, isolation is scary. Mm-hmm. Solitude is not. Isolation is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why I feel I'm so compelled to the idea of death and grief as a connective tissue mm-hmm. to others who are experiencing the transition as well as the idea transitioning whether it's you getting fired from a job because like if, if we're going to talk about something that I guess sort of cut and dry like without as much of the emotion of a losing a loved one right even when you're fired you're not the only person experiencing that death all of the people on your team are experiencing that death and they're reorienting their sense of safety and connection, what your dynamic looks like without you. There's a, you're a ghost in that space. Your former supervisor is going back in their head thinking, oh my gosh, what could I have done differently? Did I do something wrong? Like, am I a good leader? How can I do this differently? Like there's a, a lot of blame there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of fragility, and there's a lot of assumptions. And when we experience all of that turbulence together, and we're like, we're going to have to figure it out. We're just going to have to be here and feel it. And then something will arise from that labor. I think that's spectacular. Yeah, I hear you. And I definitely hold, I hold a lot of value for those spaces. And I, and I love what you say about there is inevitable residue of grief. It's never clean, cut, dry, that something ends and something else begins. There's a lot of residue and like smoke that has to clear with the loss of something, someone on all ends. Um, this is fitting into so much of my personal growth journey right now. And I don't know, I'm trying to see you and I's parallel considerations in this space. I don't know um, what you understand that I don't or what I understand that you haven't yet or what, or just how our life experiences offer us different truths, which is um, 
absolutely something. But one of the issues I had as I experienced this particular grief is that I wanted nothing more than solitude. I wanted to to go to my to go within myself, to be in a room by myself, to cry by myself, to ask questions by myself. And other people who grieved differently, who felt differently said, no, we need to gather. We need to get you here. We need to come to you. And for me, that was like excruciating a bit. Like it was so far from what I want, not even wanted from what I want <laughs> because my own understanding of safety is me taking care of things myself from my own, lots of things as you said, on my behalf and or on others who's to say that put me in a space where I was always involuntarily in groups, in spaces. And now the, the opportunity to choose solitude is deeply sacred to me, like deeply sacred. Um, and so I think that what this is bringing up for me is that part of being able to move through our grief is also the work we do before grief, after grief, around grief, around knowing ourselves and what our needs are and what's coming up for us, you know, th that speak to how we're moving through, moving through our grief. It's, it's good to hear you talk about your, your understanding of gathering and why it's important to you and what it means to you and how that's playing as a as a part of the fabric of what you how you want to experience grief and what you know you need to do to be well in it um yeah thanks for sharing that I appreciate you I reminding me that people grieve differently because when we're in moments of excruciating pain whether that is disconnection from self or others it can be really easy to forget that the others that you're in community with need something different than what your body is screaming at you that you need. And it's our job to know that unless you're, I mean, I think there's, there are many people who are very well loved where the people around them can give them what they need, but we have to communicate it out of fairness, you know, to ourselves and to the people in our world to not just be angry all the time or, mean perhaps because we're frustrated in how we're going to move through it but to say you know what i've really thought about it and i understand what i need if i could get this i'll be able to show up better for the community on the other side of it i love that i love that i actually have never seen that modeled in death like physical life death mm. um i've never seen that modeled where i've seen someone say specifically this is what i need mm -hmm. if anything a general consensus has been i don't know what i need Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I always I challenge that question all the time I challenge it with my coaching clients I challenge it with myself whenever anyone's like I don't know what I need I'm like yes you do you know yeah. exactly what you need mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and what does it look like to articulate our needs when we're in moments of that much uncertainty but I'm also more in not more interested but equally interested in what is it about community that makes us feel unsafe saying what our need is even in even when we know it and that makes me think of my own experience where I said I want to be alone and everyone's like no the morally conscious thing to do is to be in community and to gather and I'm like but that's not what I need and I think that I might have if I maybe didn't have the voice I have or didn't feel safe enough with the people in in the room or in my space to say 
actually, no, that's not what I need. Even though you're telling me that it's the right thing, being willing to be wrong, being willing to seem like the wrong person in a room where, you know, I'm like an activist and a writer. People think that, you know, in, in my mind or in my moral space, like community and gathering is supposed to be the thing I understand as the truth and as the healing and as the answer, but it wasn't the answer for me. And I feel like I had a lot of shame around that. And so I'm grateful that I felt safe telling the people in my world that it was solitude and it was a bit of internal space that I needed, but I, I love you saying that, yes, people do know, and I'm interested in how I can be a better person in community to let people say what they need, even if it doesn't feel good to me or they might have some shame around it. I think the answer to that question can be found in what what stops us from asking the people that we love for what we need, period. Mm-hmm. I agree. Even when it's not a high Yep risk octane moment and the low risk moments what stops the people we're in community with from we're asking them questions and I think that that differs based off of the person that you are and also the community that you've gathered and connected with Mm -hmm. and what does community mean and and should that idea of having safety to ask for what I need should be one of the frameworks for how we build community. You know, death also for many people, especially when it's a caregiver or someone who is big in your life, you have the opportunity to redefine family. And it certainly is for me. I have with my mother's passing, I get to redefine family because everything was so connected to her and who else she birthed and who else she, where else she came from. And going through the funeral process and the dying process, it was like, wait, are these the people I want to choose to claim to be around to invest my time and energy in? And me saying, well, if if they're not, then who is and why? And I like this question that I'm going to add to my own considerations of, I want to be around people who are willing to hear what my needs are without moral judgment and trust that I know what I need. Oh, I'm glad I was able to give that to you. <laughs> I'm grateful. Well, uh, Rachel, um, happy to swirl into the world of grief with you. Um, and also, this feels like a really nice, soft padding to round up this chapter. Uh, and I have a question for you. What is one practice that is helping you discover who you are? Um... Right now, it's been looking like ending my thoughts with a question to give myself the space to not have to figure everything out at the end. And it's allowing me to discover new pathways of curiosity, new pathways to get to conclusions. Um, I felt very contained for a lot of my life because I I did have to care for myself in a lot of ways. And so one of my defense mechanisms was to get to the answer, get to the action so I can go on to the next thing to move towards my survival. 
And in a space of a bit more financial security, in a space of a bit more self-awareness, emotional security that I have right now in my life, one practice that I'm doing to get to know myself better is let myself not have the answers and for things to mostly end in a question. Um, and that's been challenging for me because I just like to tidy things up and say, okay, that's taken care of, that's figured out, that's been felt, that's been experienced, and now I can move on. And so I am very intrigued by what comes up when I insist or invite myself to be more and more considerate, to be more and more inquisitive about how this thing, this question, this conundrum, this situation might reveal more to me than just another check on my to-do list. So does that, this is the way my brain's interpreting it, is that this morning I'm going to go for a run or this morning I'm going to go for a run? Mm. No, I'm thinking, I mean, no, not that, but I like that. Um, it's the way that this shows up for me in my mind is um, I want to give a solid example. Um, instead of when I write, when I write essays, when I get commissioned work, like a Cosmo magazine just asked me to write something. And usually as a writer, I want to present information that says, here's what I understand. And here's how you might understand it as well. And here's how we all can have like a tidy set of this information. I've, I've committed to all of my essays for the next little while ending with a question, ending with me saying, here's what I understand about this. What might we all explore moving forward? Which is probably something that writers should be doing anyways. But for me and the way that I was moving through the world, it was like, let me know this, understand this, package this and move on. And, and the way that it's showing up in my work is everything that I'm writing is ending in a question, inviting more, more consideration from myself and the reader instead of me feeling solid that I have to understand a topic or be the most knowledgeable about a topic to write about it. Um, I could be the question that, that I could be the question asker um, instead. Oh, it sounds like uh, with your writing specifically that the writing is a seed, not a package. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that language. <laughs> awesome. I like this. <laughs> I like this. And also recognizing the immense amount of knowledge that a seed does carry. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Amazing. Okay, Rachel, this has been a blast. Thank yeah, you so yeah. much. Uh, can you shout out what you're building right now and where the Not Yet community can find you and your work? Yeah, most of my work um, can be, is the most visible on social media at my personal page. Uh, Rachel at rachel.cargill and my book is the next big thing happening May 16th my book will be out and it's really cool to be able to offer my book through my own bookstore Elizabeth's Bookshop and Writing Center that's been a really special part of this experience so um, yeah just inviting people to be in conversation with me through my book 
thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Not Yet. The podcast is hosted by me, Paige Polk, and produced by Paige Polk International. The show art is made by Elizabeth Olguin, and the music is by Elder. Don't forget to subscribe here. And if you want more of this love in your life, visit notyetseries.com to join the Not Yet Project and community.